crypto should be left to sort of sink or swim on its own. It shouldn't be too big to fail. And so that's another critical reason why it needs to stay out of the banking system. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast edition of Untangled. I'm your host, Charlie Johnson. This month, I wrote about why decentralized finance is a normal accident waiting to happen. If you haven't read it yet, first of all, rude. But second of all, do that now and then return to this episode. It'll help, I promise. In the piece, I argued that the collapse we are currently witnessing in DeFi is an indictment of a system that treats the dynamic interaction of leverage and rigidity as features to be celebrated rather than bugs to be avoided or, you know, regulated. In it, I drew upon the writing and thinking of Hillary Allen, a law professor at American University and expert in financial stability. Good news. Hillary agreed to come on Untangled and talk about how the dynamics present in DeFi today are similar to those built into the financial system in the lead up to the 2008 crisis. Now, finance is complicated. I was intimidated to write about it, but don't let that deter you. Alan is an incredible explainer of key concepts and how complex dynamics within the financial system interact. In our conversation, we discussed how DeFi, despite having decentralization right there in the name, isn't actually decentralized for early untangled readers and listeners. And here I'm mostly referring to my dad and my sister. This won't be surprising. We discussed how transparency of on-chain data is no match for complexity when trying to understand and address systemic risk. We discuss how Hillary would regulate DeFi if given a blank sheet of paper. Oh, and we also talk about how a future collapse of DeFi could impact all of us. Listen to the end to hear how. It's, you know, not great. Nevertheless, I'm grateful to Hillary for coming on the show, and I'm grateful to you for listening along. As always, if you like the podcast, please review it, rate it, and share it. Make it go to the moon, as the kids say. And now, on to the show. Hillary Allen, welcome to Untangled. Thanks so much for having me. So what's your story? How did you come to be a law professor who focuses on the financial system? So I came to be a law professor because I think I'm one of those nerds that never quite got over law school. The financial system was more of an accident. I had every intention of being an IP lawyer, and then I started practicing as an attorney with some IP lawyers, and I didn't get on with them very well. <laughs> and so <laughs> I ended up transferring to a group that worked on finance, and you know it all worked out. I, I found an affinity for it, and I practiced in financial law related fields for seven years. And I also uh, worked with the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission before I got into academia and, and teaching in the space. Take me back to when you first became interested in decentralized finance. How does that story begin? Well, right where I just left off, actually, which is that I looked at the, you know, in detail, the financial crisis of 2008 and really my work has always been about financial stability regulation. How do we prevent 
financial crises from occurring or how do we mitigate their impact? And so there's a lot of different ways to look at that. You know, there's an administrative law angle, who are the different agencies, are they doing their job right? But it's also important to look at developments in the financial industry to see what's happening. And around about 2014 or 2015, I started looking at Bitcoin. And at that point, it was really more of a, a sort of a fun hypothetical. Is, is this something here that could impact our financial system? And, and really, it was more of a thought exercise than anything else. But I stayed current with things that were happening in the crypto space. And, you know, fast forward a few years, and it started to be a lot less hypothetical. We started to have, you know, an alternative financial system that has a lot of the fragilities that we saw in the lead up to 2008. Um, being constructed in the crypto space. Um, and so I have shifted my posture for thinking this is sort of an interesting thought exercise to being deeply concerned about what's happening in the DeFi space. In this conversation, I want to walk through the framework you put forward for comparing dynamics within the 2008 financial crisis to dynamics present in DeFi today, and then apply that framework to a few examples playing out in real time. But before we dive in, let's define some key terms. What is DeFi? How should someone think about it? Well, defining terms in this space is always tricky because when you've got a new field like this, even the people who participate in it don't necessarily always agree on, on the terminology. So I'm going to give it a shot with the understanding that there will be people who will absolutely quibble <laughs> with, my, with my definition. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance. What it really is, to my mind, is equivalence of existing financial products and services, things like loans, deposit accounts, et cetera, that are made up out of what we think of as blockchain technologies. So, um, you know, digital assets being, you know, computer files, blockchains being databases on which those computer files live smart contracts being computer programs that can run within those databases and execute transactions with respect to those computer files. So if you construct a sort of a, an equivalent of an existing financial system out of those kind of technologies, then that is sort of what DeFi is to my mind. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that the defining feature of it is that it is decentralized I dispute that, so I, I prefer to define the term, define DeFi by the technology it uses. Let's dive into some of these disputes. Why isn't DeFi actually decentralized as its proponents claim? Well, at every level, there are people you're trusting, right? So DeFi, most DeFi operates on the Ethereum blockchain, but the, there are other blockchains as well. But at the blockchain level, you're trusting in both the, the, the core software developers, and there's usually just a handful of those for, for each blockchain. And you're also trusting in the validators who are in charge of essentially um, approving transactions being added to the blockchain. And so again, that's usually just a few mining pools. So you know at, at that sort of base level that you're trusting those kind of people. Then there are the actual sort of the, the protocols or the, the, you know, the, the D apps that are, that live on those blockchains and carry out the financial um, services. And so there you often have a, a founder. The founder will sometimes say that they are handing over control to a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, and that the DAO will be making um, the decisions going forward. 
But if you look at who actually holds most of the governance tokens in those DAOs, it is the founders um, or some venture capital firms that gave them money. And they really can continue to call all the shots. Well, a, a good analogy is just because you have one chair in Facebook doesn't mean you can overrule Mark Zuckerberg. So, you know, you're, you're, you're trusting the founders and the VC, the people who have these concentrated holdings of, of these DAO governance tokens. And then there are plenty of players in this space that don't even, don't even pretend to be decentralized. There are all kinds of centralized exchanges. There are centralized stablecoin issuers. Um, and then there are intermediaries that people don't appreciate, like, um, you know, like Infura and Alchemy that, that provide APIs that allow people to actually access the blockchain. You're trusting them too. At every level in all of this, you are trusting a lot of different intermediaries. So I think it's very misleading, the rhetoric about, you know, DeFi being a place where there are all the intermediaries have been gotten rid of. It's just simply not the case. In your paper, DeFi Shadow Banking 2.0, you call out similarities between contributing factors to the 2008 financial crisis and dynamics present in DeFi today. At a high level, what are these dynamics and when did you start to notice these similarities? So to segue from what we just talked about, my point is if the only distinguishing feature between what we have in terms of traditional finance and decentralized finance is if the only distinguishing feature is supposed to be the decentralization and it's not really decentralized, then what's the point, particularly because we're mirroring some of the real problems from the traditional financial system and in some ways even exacerbating it. I talk about, for example, credit default swaps in the lead up to 2008. And now these were a type of derivative contract that essentially allowed you multiple people to gain exposure to one bond. So, you know, you could have a single bond and you had virtually unlimited numbers of bets against that bond that could be made using credit default swaps. The only limitation was, was someone willing to keep issuing these credit default swaps and AIG was willing to keep, you know, issuing these things. And so we had just um, a lot of exposure to these underlying assets. And what that did was it, it magnified the amount of leverage in the financial system and made it much more fragile because one problem with one bond suddenly impacted a whole lot of people. So leverage is a classic sort of generator of financial instability. And what you have in DeFi is instead of having like credit default swaps, unlimited ways of betting against one asset, you have unlimited assets to bet against because there's no tie to the real world with crypto assets. They can be made up by anyone with computer programming knowledge. Now, again, you need someone who's willing to lend against those assets, but that's not always a, you know, a good limitation factor if we think about you know, if, if AIG was willing to keep writing credit default swaps long past um, when they were supposed to, are people willing to keep lending against crypto assets that have no value and they shouldn't lend against them? So leverage is one of the things um, that I identify in the paper. Another thing I identify is this concept of rigidity, lack of flexibility. You often hear crypto proponents say this is like a good thing, right? You know, you can't have bailouts in this space. I understand that bailouts are highly problematic in a lot of ways, but when you know the proverbial is really hitting the fan, you want some discretion because otherwise if things can't be paused or limited or excused, what you get is a hyper rigid system 
that has all kinds of unexpected um, spillovers and a lot of people get hurt. Something we've learned from financial meltdowns over and over and over again is you need some flexibility in the space. And one of the problems that we saw in 2008 was the mortgage-backed security contracts had been set up in such a way that it was very hard to vary them. They were designed to be bankruptcy remote, to be kept out of the bankruptcy courts where a lot of discretion could be applied. You know, there were a lot of other features that made them very rigid. And so when we're in the midst of a crisis, these mortgage-backed securities, they prevented individual mortgage or they limited the ability of individual mortgages to be modified when people really needed help. And they also really made it hard to value these hyper-rigid contracts because you know, the, there, was, there was no understanding of how they would operate in unusual circumstances. And so that valuation problem rippled into the broader system. So rigidity is a problem, and we see rigidity taken to the next level with smart contracts. So I, I mentioned earlier that smart contracts are just computer programs that live on, on the blockchain and are executed on the, you know, using the virtual assets on the database. These things are intended to execute automatically as soon as they get the, you know, the, the relevant data feeds. You know, we've got that rigidity and, and, and we have that rigidity happening at a speed that wasn't anticipated before we had sort of programmed, pre-programmed um, these kinds of obligations. And so that is really concerning to me as well. Um, so those are two features, the rigidity and the, and the increased leverage. There's also just the overarching complexity problem, right? Um, and this is, this is, goes back to what I said about, you know, if the only point of this is decentralized and it's not decentralized, then why are we even doing this? The, the, the problem is because they've tried to structure this as decentralized and then added all the intermediaries back in, we're dealing with a system that is actually much more complicated in many ways than traditional finance. And unnecessary complexity makes systems more fragile. It makes them more prone to what we call cascade failures, unanticipated errors spilling through the interconnections that we didn't even realize were there. And then it also makes it really hard to make assessments about you know, where risks lie because it's the, you know, the interrelationships are all really complicated. And, and you'll often hear from DeFi proponents, well, actually, you know, everything's super transparent here. It's all on the blockchain. And when things are so complex, it, even if you have that data, it's not easy to make sense of how things work. And I also would push back and say that a lot of the data in DeFi is actually happening off chain. A lot of the transactions are not happening on the blockchain. They're happening in sort of ledgers held by parties who participate in the blockchain. So, you know, I don't even think we have that transparency in the first place. But the, the broader point is that when you, even when you do have the data, when it's super complex, it's hard to make sense of it. What are some of the more complex elements within DeFi that we can't easily see via on-chain data? So it depends what folks are trying to get insight into, right? So, you know, if we're talking about individual investors or individual participants, you know, 
what they might want insight into is, you know, who are the whales in this space? Who are the people who hold all the governance tokens? Who are, you know, who can make all the decisions? That might not be readily available um, on the blockchain. You know, you might be able to see that there's concentrated ownership, but then if people have run their their ownership through through a tumbler or something that you know that disguises their or they've broken it up into lots of different wallets, it might not be clear that all of the these tokens are being held by one person. So that kind of thing can be challenging for an individual investor. But if you're thinking about systemic risk, which is where I come from on a lot of this. You're thinking about someone trying to get a picture of you know, who all the players are, what their interrelationship is. And that can be really hard to deduce um, when there are all kinds of complex you know, paths for ownership and different kinds of transactions. So even with that data, it can be hard to piece it all together. We've talked about leverage and rigidity you also call out the role of money market mutual funds in the 2008 financial crisis. What are they and what happened? So a money market mutual fund is a, it's an equity investment. You're buying a share in a fund. And what that fund does is that it invests in high quality liquid assets. And you know, what counts, you know, what the types of assets that a money market mutual fund can invest in are established by regulation. And in exchange for keeping the portfolio of the fund within the boundaries of that regulation, the money market mutual fund is allowed to use a special accounting treatment that allows it to always value a share of the fund at $1. I say always, there's a caveat on that. If the value of the assets in the portfolio fall too low, then we call that breaking the buck. And then people no longer have a $1 share in the money market mutual fund. They have, you know, 97 cents or 96 cents or you know what whatever it is but the expectations that people have are that these shares will always be worth a dollar and so in 2008 we had the reserve primary fund which had exposure to lehman it was forced to revalue its shares it broke the buck um, and that spurred a general panic amongst money market mutual fund investors because they were all expecting that their shares would always be worth $1. And now they see that the reserve primary fund has broken the buck. And now they're wondering whether they will be able to get a dollar for their share. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to pull their money out. They take a, they're trying to cash in their shares to get a dollar. What that does is it forces the money market mutual funds to start selling off the assets in their reserve. And the money market mutual funds are going to sell the best, most liquid assets off first, which means that what's left may not be enough to give everybody a dollar a share. So there's that incentive to be the first mover, to get in first, even though everybody would actually be better off if no one redeemed. You can't trust other people not to redeem. So you want to be first out. And that's classic run dynamic. And so that's why Federal Reserve basically stepped in with guarantee programs to guarantee that your share in a money market mutual fund will only be, will, sorry, will always be worth a dollar. And that was enough to stop people from, you know, redeeming their shares in a destructive way. In what ways are money market mutual funds a useful analog to stable coins? First of all, I should probably explain what a stable coin is. Um, stable coin is another ingredient of DeFi. It is a type of, of, um, a virtual, it's a type of crypto asset. 
it is a computer file, but unlike most of the other computer files, it is backed by a real world asset, or at least some of them are. The idea is, and there really is quite a strong analogy to money market mutual funds here, that the issuers of these reserved stable coins will issue you a stable coin that will always be worth a dollar. And in order to hold that peg, they will keep a reserve of assets that's enough to always pay out $1. That, that's sort of the selling point. Just like money market mutual funds, though, though you know, the, the, the value of the assets in the reserve can, can fluctuate. And so it's quite possible that your stablecoin might not always stay valued a dollar. And really, that's perhaps giving too much credit to some of these stable coins because they're not regulated like money market mutual funds. There aren't people there making sure that the assets in the reserve are what these stable coins say they are. So for example, Tether, um, which is still, I believe, although it's been losing market share, the biggest, um, biggest stable coin, there have been countless um, investigative journalist reports into Tether alleging that it does not have the necessary assets to hold its peg or justify its peg. In addition to those reserved stable coins, there are other stable coins that have no reserve at all, and they purport to keep their $1 peg through other ways. And so um, sort of perhaps the most notorious example of these so-called algorithmic stable coins is Terra. Um, and yes, Tether and Terra sound alike, and I get confused all the time. I mix them up all the time. But Terra was um, an algorithmic stable coin. And basically, it was supposed to maintain its dollar value by being paired with another cryptocurrency that was not a stable coin, and that was Luna. And so the idea was that there were incentives to arbitrage Terra and Luna back and forth. So if one sort of seemed mispriced, you'd buy the other one back, you know, and back and forth. And that that was supposed to keep the price of Terra always pegged at $1. Problem was when demand for both Terra and Luna fell away, the arbitrage mechanism didn't work and Terra rapidly lost value. And a lot of people lost a lot of money there. The, the money market mutual fund run analogy works better for the tethers of this world, for, for reserve back stable coins. It's not a perfect analogy because in a money market mutual fund, anyone who owns a share in a money market mutual fund has a contractual right to go and demand their redemption of their share. Something that I'm not sure everyone appreciates about stable coins is that if you have something like Tether or USDC, a lot of the sort of the smaller holders of those have no direct redemption rights from Tether or USDC. You're basically, your only option is to go to an exchange and hope someone on the exchange will give you a dollar for your, your Tether or your USDC. You, you have no right to go to Tether or USDC to get your money back. But my, my recent understanding of this is that if you are a very big holder of Tether or USDC, then you have a direct redemption right. The bigger fish, if you will, can run, whereas the little fish don't actually even have the ability to run, even as the big fish may be um, redeeming their stable coins for all of the assets in the reserve.
Okay, we're in the midst of a collapse of the crypto market. Are the dynamics you named in your paper playing out in practice? The good news is that it's not sufficiently integrated with our existing financial system to have major systemic repercussions. It seems to be contained within the space. So that's good news for all, for those who sort of have never invested in crypto, who are participants in, participants in the real world economy. They're not feeling the fallout of this. So as I said, that's good news. And I hope that it doesn't create apathy in policymakers and think that this mm. will never have spillover effects. I think if, if steps aren't taken to wall off the traditional banking system from crypto, the next time we have a crypto crash, it could be a lot worse for the broader economy. But right now it does seem quite contained. For the individuals who are invested though, these are some very hard times. And in terms of sort of things that I called out in the paper that, that have come to pass, um, I think the leverage point is, is really significant. I think we're seeing that, in fact, a lot of loans were made against crypto um, assets. And, you know, everyone said that they were safe because they were over collateralized. I mean, if something goes to zero, if your collateral goes to zero, it's not over collateralized. We're seeing that the leverage has been a huge problem in this current crypto crash for the crypto players. And that's why we're seeing a lot of different platforms halting withdrawals. There are players who are over leveraged, they can't. And so we're also seeing the run dynamics play out, right? People want to get their money out. There isn't enough money to give everybody money, their money back. And so you're seeing people like Celsius freeze redemptions. I don't think we've seen the rigidity play out in a systemically problematic way. But I think we are seeing that the leverage is proven to be a problem. We're seeing the runs proving to be a problem. Um, and I think the overall complexity just hangs over this all like a poll that people, you, you, if you look at the Reddit boards for people who lost a lot of money in this space, they often just didn't understand what they were getting into. The DeFi offerings that are purporting to be like a bank account, so for example, Celsius, are some of the most problematic ones. Um, you know, you're seeing people who thought that they had something that was in a bank account. You're seeing a lot of questions about whether FDIC insurance applies, which it absolutely does not. So I think the complexity hangs like a pole over all of this and has um, generated really bad outcomes for a lot of people who invested in this space. Many crypto enthusiasts are actually arguing that DeFi has shown itself to be resilient in the moment and that really the big problems are occurring in centralized finance or CFI. What does that argument misunderstand? Um, I think it misunderstands the fact that none of this is decentralized. It sort of seems to be, to my mind, a sort of a, a way of dealing cognitively with the fact that something you believe in has failed, right? So if, if you believe in something and, and it's really hard for you to accept that, it helps to be able to say, well, they weren't pure enough, right? They, they, they didn't satisfy the decentralization purity test and that's why they failed. So I'm seeing a lot of that rhetorically, you know, it was because they were too centralized. But as I mentioned right at the beginning, all of this space is highly centralized. Nothing is truly decentralized. 
and every time there's a problem with an ostensibly decentralized thing, we see the founder come out with, they're, they're the ones who are tweeting and people are paying attention to. The founder is the one that offers the emergency help that isn't enough, right? So I don't think any of this is really decentralized. Yeah, it's really quite incredible how much DeFi, something with decentralization right in the name, depends on the power of founders to shape market sentiment. Yeah, and it's not just that. They're also voting all the a lot of the governance tokens. They still have the lion's share. Right now, it seems like DeFi isn't all that connected to the real economy. How does this go from a problem that's self-contained, cordoned off within DeFi that hurts speculators and traders to a problem that impacts all of us? Uh, it goes to that problem if the banks invest in this space. Um, is what I, I see is the real problem. Um, you know, if we go back to 2008, the reason why we had such a broad recession following um, that financial crisis is because banks stopped lending, um, because banks were highly exposed to all kinds of problematic assets and they were scared and they were hoarding liquidity and they didn't want to lend. We need, you know, as a sort of a basic economic matter for, for credit to keep flowing into the economy. And so banks need to stay out of this space, to my mind. There's another reason why I think banks need to stay out of the space, and that's something we call moral hazard. So the idea behind moral hazard is if you know that there's sort of a, a guarantee or insurance behind you, you might act more recklessly knowing that someone else will deal with the fallout. And to be clear, moral hazard is a real problem in the traditional financial system. Banks have deposit insurance. They know that you know if they go belly up, the the the, the um, government will will bail out their depositors, and so we have a lot of regulation in place to sort of govern the the impacts of that moral hazard. When they first introduced deposit insurance in the 1930s, a lot of economists were against it. They said this is a bad idea. We're giving bad incentive, but public opinion essentially won out because there had been so many banking panics. And it had been really disastrous for the broader economy. The thing about crypto is that it doesn't serve the broader economy. It's kind of a self-referential ecosystem where people are betting on things that happen in the crypto ecosystem. So really, there's no good economic case for bailing that out. But as soon as the banks start getting involved with this and intertwined with this, then it's inevitable that government guarantees, implicit subsidies, you know, deposit insurance, all of this stuff will start to extend to the crypto ecosystem. And I think that's a really bad outcome. Crypto should be left to sort of sink or swim on its own. It shouldn't be too big to fail. And so that's another critical reason why it needs to stay out of the banking system. What's the state of play? Are banks getting into crypto? Not a lot yet. We're seeing some interest. Um, I think there's, you know, going back to the first point I made about, you know, using credit default swaps to magnify leverage. I think there's a lot of profit to be made if banks could use crypto as collateral. So regulation, I think, has been strong enough to prevent them from doing that. So the question then becomes, after this crypto crash is over, we have intense amounts of, of crypto lobbying. 
will that lobbying succeed in sort of wearing down the you know the restrictions on banks participating in this space if that happens then that's you know that's the bad outcome so what we really need is the opposite we need a strengthening of the wall between banking and crypto um, and hopefully what's happening right now will help convince bank regulators about you know the necessity for keeping banks out of this crypto space. Speaking of regulations, imagine you were given a blank sheet of paper. What would you propose? I mean, if I'm the benevolent dictator here, um, I actually think a lot of stuff in the crypto ecosystem should, if not be banned, be forced to justify its own existence you know so i something i've proposed a number of times is a licensing regime for um novel financial products you have to explain what the what the economic use case is that it justifies the risks attendant to that etc um because as i said that this doesn't seem to have broader economic benefits in addition to not having broader economic benefits we should be clear that there are large environmental um problems associated with how some of the blockchains process transactions. There are uh, national security implications in the sense that, that you know, the, the whole idea of ransomware attacks grew up with um, crypto assets, you know, that, that they, those kinds of attacks really only make sense in the context of having crypto asset payments. And then there are, as I mentioned, the, the fragility concerns that I'm most interested in. So all of those are sort of real black marks against against crypto. So I would like to see really concrete use cases demonstrated for this before it's allowed to proceed. And you know the the answer you typically get when you say that is like well but innovation we don't know what will come from this you need to sort of you know let a thousand flowers bloom etc. I think we need to be a little more precautionary than that. You know, this, this stuff has been around for 13 years. We don't have a sort of a killer app or a use case in a, in a sort of, it's not great for payments. And I don't think that it could ever be better than a centralized solution for the reasons that I outlined earlier, particularly about the complexity, right? So we go to all this trouble to try and make something decentralized, but then we add all the intermediaries back in. That's complex and it's inefficient. Whereas if you start with the problem rather than the technology and you say, how do I solve this problem the best way possible, the, the most efficient and simplest way possible, you're not going to go with a purportedly decentralized, but then re-centralized mechanism. So I really don't see a lot going for this technology and in light of its negative externalities, I think a much stronger approach to it is warranted. Okay, I'm ending the podcast on the same last question. If you could give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be and why? I think I would say to my teenage self, be extremely grateful that you did not have social media to record all your mistakes. You don't know what I'm talking about yet, but just be happy because there is no social media. And then where can folks find you online? So I am on Twitter um, at Prof Hillary Allen. 
Um, I also have a webpage. I'm a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and there is a webpage there with my CV and other things I've written as well. Hillary Allen, thanks so much for coming on Untangled. Thanks so much, Charlie.